We're making our way through the entire book of Revelation. Uh, we're in, obviously, only chapter 3 right now. So we're in that section on, of the letters to the seven first century churches. God willing, in the months ahead, we will progress from chapter 3 into chapter 4 and all the way through to the very end. But here we are in the midst of this section of Revelation in which the resurrected Christ sends letters to seven churches, which were real historical churches in seven first century cities. And he's writing here to the church in Sardis. And what he is rebuking the church in Sardis for is a sort of hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to break hypocrisy down into two subcategories what I'm going to call obvious hypocrisy and not as obvious hypocrisy, all right? Obvious hypocrisy is what was happening in Pergamum and in Thyatira, for example, where there were people in Pergamum who were were teaching that it was okay to go worship in pagan temples and partake of their pagan rituals, participate in their pagan rituals, and even practice sexual immorality. So you could be a Christian, but you could go into pagan temples and worship there and practice sexual immorality. That's an example of what I would call obvious hypocrisy. It's very much inconsistent with what the scriptures teach us. Likewise, in Thyatira, there were those, specifically there was a woman who was the ringleader of of a group who was teaching and seducing Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, this is not about just going to the market and buying food which had been sacrificed to idols, but this is participating in pagan rituals and committing sexual immorality. So this is, this is for example, the Christians, the Christians, quote-unquote, who are in church every Sunday, but you know they're drunk as a skunk on Saturday night, uh, down at Harbor Lights, they're out on the, on the road uh, during Kadumit. They're just very blatantly living double lives, right? This is what I'm going to call obvious hypocrisy, all right? What's going on in Sardis is what I'm going to call not as obvious hypocrisy. And there is a thing which is not as obvious hypocrisy. We don't know specifically what was going on in Sardis, but we do know that there was some kind of not as obvious hypocrisy going on. And we know that because Jesus says to the church at Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So obviously there was some hypocrisy going on, but it was not as obvious. In various ways, not as obvious hypocrisy can present itself. Let me give you two sort of examples of ways that not as obvious hypocrisy can present itself. And this, I'm not trying to make an exhaustive list, but I'm trying to illustrate at least so you can have an idea of how not as obvious hypocrisy can come about. The first type of not as obvious hypocrisy that I will mention this morning 
is seeking the applause of those outside the church. The second will be seeking the applause of those inside the church. But let's start with seeking the applause of those outside the church. We know that in our day and age, there are many supposed Christians who seek the applause of those outside the church in various ways. On social or moral issues. Sometimes there is a political pandering to those outside the church. So unbiblical concepts come to the fore in wider society unless we be, what's the phrase, on the wrong side of history. Right? We're, we're quick to deviate from biblical concepts and biblical definitions of things in order to get the applause of those outside the church. Right? So, unbiblical concepts like white guilt or defund the police or, hey, that man is actually a woman or whatever it might be, right? There are various things which are against the way that God has set things up. God made men and women. God says that the government bears the sword, right? And that whoever opposes the government opposes that which God has appointed. So we we shouldn't be anti-establishment or anti-authority, anti-government in these kind of ways. And when it comes to white guilt, there's no such thing as white guilt any more than there's such thing as Asian guilt or black guilt or whatever. Now, obviously, I'm not saying no white people have ever done anything bad. Obviously, that's not the point I'm making. But the point I'm making is that you're not, you're not guilty simply by virtue of belonging to a certain ethnicity. Right? So if I made a statement like all blacks are... Right? Or, or all, all Asians are... Right? You would say, hey, that's, that's not right. That's not a, a correct biblical concept. So likewise, we shouldn't say all whites are either. Right? So, so there are Christians, I, I, I'm sort of half quotes, all right, if I can put it this way, because I'm not saying that anyone who is mixed up about some of this stuff, I'm not saying every single one is truly not a Christian, but what I am saying is there are some who aren't, and, and what they really want to do is ultimately what makes them tick is getting the applause of those outside the church. And so to be thought of as a real forward-thinking Christian, to be thought of as a real progressive Christian, to be thought of as a real enlightened Christian, a real someone who really bridges the gap between that the ancient world of the biblical text and yet and the modern world and is able to somehow sort of be a go-between and a mediator bringing bringing an otherwise archaic and irrelevant religion into the modern world. To just have the intellectual prowess to be able to bridge those worlds and, and make Jesus accessible to a new generation. Like these are the sorts of things that some people have a hankering to have said about them. And so they're, they're very earnest. They're not ambivalent about 
spiritual things. They, they talk a lot about Jesus. They read and quote from the Bible. Right? They're out there. They're active. They have a reputation of being alive. But at least some of them are dead. What they are really after, at the end of the day, what ultimately makes them tick is seeking the applause of those outside the church. Alright? So they do that in a social or moral way. Likewise, you can see how doctrinal deviation can fall under that category as well. They'll try to make the Bible... They, let, me say it, let me say it this way. They give too much away. In, again, in trying to sort of bridge the ancient world and the world of today, they're willing to sort of sell the farm, so to speak. Right? Well, we know that this, this is an ancient book full of myths. You know, and it was written by men. <laughs> like every other book, by the way, <laughs> which people believe in and, and <laughs> trust. Right? But you know, how, you know how it goes, right? We can't, we can't actually believe that God parted the sea and led the people of Israel through. We, we know that. But it's inspirational to us because it shows that when our backs are up against the wall, God can make a way. Right? And, and so away with the doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility and away with the, the bigoted doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ and so on and so forth. And so these guys rise, rise up in the ranks of secularizing and liberalizing seminaries and they become deans of, of schools and they, become, they, be, they get appointed to ecclesiastical offices higher than those of their contemporaries who won't make such enlightened concessions to the modern scientific thought and so on and so forth. Again, what they're after, at the end of the day, what makes them tick is the applause of those outside the church. Alright, so they might be very busy in the church. They might be very active in the church. They might use very churchy language. They might talk about the Bible. They might quote Jesus. They might walk around in ministerial garb or a clerical collar all week long. They are thought of, they have a reputation of being... Alive. Christians. But they are dead. Alright, this is what I'm calling one example of not so obvious hypocrisy. Alright, they're not out there carousing and, and living in all kinds of open immorality. But there is this not so obvious hypocrisy where they have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. Another type of this reputation of being alive but being dead is being ultimately preoccupied with the applause of those inside the church. Now listen, if I were, if I were to say, now we're not going to be like that because we believe the Bible. We believe in Jesus. We believe, believe in inerrancy. We believe in infallibility. We believe in two genders. We believe... There are, there's a certain subset of people that, that will cheer for me for giving voice to conservative biblical values. 
And while it's right to champion those conservative biblical values, can you see that you could have more than one motivation for doing so? You could, you could be interested in holding the line because it's what the Bible says and because you love God and because you want to live for God's glory and subject yourself to God's instructions and so on and so forth. Or it could be because you realize that there are some people who want that. And it's one way of rising the ranks, rising up in the ranks of ecclesiastical office and getting appointed to uh, be, become deans of seminaries and so on. We're not talking about the liberal ones now, we're talking about the conservative ones now. Right? And so on, on one hand, these look like two totally different types of Christians. The ones who believe there are 108 genders and the ones who believe in only two. The ones who believe that the Bible is full of errors and myths and unscientific things and the ones who believe it's inerrant and infallible. And, you know, the ones who believe that there's more than one way to God and how bigoted it would be to think that only Jesus can get us there. And those who believe in faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and, and so on, they look very, very different. But can you see that at the end of the day, these two seemingly different types of people could be really just doing the same thing, which is seeking the applause of men. You figure out what a certain subset of people like, and then you give that to them so that they will applaud you, so that they will think highly of you, so that they will think well of you. The Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 are a, are a fantastic example of this kind of heart motivation. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Do you realize there's not only a liberal way of doing that, but there's a conservative way of doing that? They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. Do you realize that you can have this not-so-obvious hypocrisy alive and well in your own soul in a conservative, Bible-believing church? Do you realize that you can be a Reformed church member or a Reformed pastor and have this kind of not-so-obvious hypocrisy alive and well in your heart? Whether your deeds are conforming to the whims and preferences of our liberalizing, secularizing society, or whether our, our deeds that we're doing to be seen by others are standing firm against that, when that heart motivation there of doing deeds to be seen by others is the governing principle of our hearts right there, that's not so obvious. Hypocrisy, And so everyone looking on would say, hey, that, that man or that woman is alive. But Christ looking on says that, that person is dead. This kind of not so obvious hypocrisy is using religion to advance one's own reputation. Using religion 
as a tool to advance one's own reputation so that you hear other men say he's the kind of Christian I approve of it feeds your ego and it results in the accruing of glory to yourself a not so obvious kind of hypocrisy well listen what matters is not what your reputation is but what the reality is in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3 we are introduced to Jesus as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars and we know from our study of chapter 1 that the seven spirits of God is a way of talking about the completeness of the Holy Spirit and his ministry and we know that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches or representatives of the seven churches we know this from Revelation chapter 1. So I would remind you of a distinction that has been made historically between the visible church and the invisible church. This is the visible church. We're in it right now. We're having a meeting. This is a meeting of the visible church. Some of you are church members, whether here or elsewhere. And so you are visibly part of the church if you are a church member. And so the visible church is the people who are on the membership rolls of churches all around the world who gather for worship Sunday by Sunday and so on and so forth. And there it's temporal, it's quantifiable, it's observable, the visible church. Now, theoretically, ideally, the visible church is supposed to exactly reflect the invisible church. In other words, you don't, you don't want church members who are hypocrites, whether obvious or not so obvious. If we had x-rays to see the sincerity of people's hearts, and we know that someone is just playing games, we shouldn't receive them in as members of the church. And if we have already, we should put them out. If we could see that someone has a reputation of being alive, but really they're dead, they don't belong in the visible church, right? But the reality is, I don't have that x-ray machine, so you can breathe a sigh of relief in one sense. I can't see, right, in, right into your soul, right? They say the eyes are the windows of the soul, but only, only in a certain sense. I mean, you can tell maybe if someone's a bit upset or if someone's excited or whatever, by looking, but you can't really see into someone's soul by giving them a, a good long stare, right? I can't do that. So, so in that sense, you can breathe a sigh of relief. But listen, Jesus is the one who has the churches and has the Spirit of God. Which means he's the one who, who has the visible church and he's the one who has insight into the spiritual realities. And whether they correspond or whether they don't correspond. In other words, I can't see infallibly whether the Spirit has worked upon your heart. But he who has the seven spirits of God can. I can't see with 
with certainty, nor can you see with, in one another with certainty whether your professed love for God is sincere or not. But he who has the seven spirits of God can. I can't possibly go examine every Christian in the world, but he who has the seven stars, symbolically representing the churches, can. You see, Jesus has, has one hand, so to speak, on the church, and one hand, so to speak, on the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's, he's got a pulse then on what's happening visibly and what's happening invisibly. What matters is not your reputation. What matters is what the reality is. What matters is not what your reputation is, but what the reality is. Let me ask you a few probing questions. Are you watchful over your own soul? In this passage here, Jesus says in verse 2, Revelation 3 and verse 2, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The sense of this here is be watchful and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The threat is if you do not be watchful, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, implicitly, against you. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Sardis was a city that was up at the top of a cliff. On the one hand, or sorry, on the one side of the city was this, this steep hill. So an army would have to march uphill, easily observed from a distance, so no element of surprise whatsoever, up a hill to conquer Sardis. Or they'd have to ascend 1,500 feet up a sheer cliff on the other side. So Sardis was very, very secure geographically. But guess what? Sardis was conquered twice in history before this, uh, the time that this letter was written. And you know what happened both times? People went up the cliff. Seriously, 1,500 feet. And they climbed up this, this sheer cliff. On one, in one case, it was, I guess, one guy. And, and then went and opened the gate and some army came in. And in another case, it was a little crew of about 15 guys. But they went up this sheer cliff and opened the gate. Well, if you were on the watch in Sardis, you'd probably think to yourself, you just take a look down the hill every now and again. You'd probably barely ever, if ever, look right over the cliff and see if there happens to be guys climbing up it in the middle of the night. Because even though you realize that happened twice in their history, that was twice in several hundred years. So night after night after night after night went by, unsurprisingly, with no one trying to scale a 1,500-foot cliff without proper climbing equipment, right? And so you'd probably just think to yourself, uh, I'm not in very much danger. Everything's okay. I'm safe, right? You'd probably just glance down the hill from time to time, make sure everything's cool, and then go back to sleep, right? The sense of this here is, don't think that you are so safe. Don't, don't just presume that you're safe. Watch and verify whether you are safe or not. Don't just assume you're safe. Verify 
whether you are saved. Be watchful. Right? This is what is going on here in this passage. Are you a genuine, sincere believer in and follower of Christ Jesus? Or are you a hypocrite? Are you simply claiming to be one thing while you are something else? You may know obvious hypocrisy in your own life of which I and other church members are not aware. You may know that you are a hypocrite in an obvious way. Or you may be a hypocrite in a not so obvious way. What are the inner workings of your heart as you serve the Lord? Why are you serving the Lord? For what? For the applause of the people in the pews beside you or in front of you or behind you? Or for my applause or for Pastor Chris's applause that when he comes down, he's going to just be so pleased with you? Or, like, or so that your non-Christian friends will just think what a devoted person you are and say things like, wow, I could never have such a faith as you and that makes you feel good inside? Or like, what are you really doing this for? Do you like when you post something spiritual on Facebook and a hundred people click like? And that's really what it's all about? That's, that's a kind of hypocrisy. It's a not so obvious kind of hypocrisy, but it is hypocrisy. What is it about for you? Don't just presume this morning. Don't just sit there and say, well, I'm safe. This sermon's for somebody else. I'm safe. Don't do that. Verify. Look down the cliff, so to speak, and be sure that Jesus is not coming up in judgment against you for the hypocrisy which He is well aware of as He who has both the stars and the Spirit of God, who has a pulse on both the church visible and the church invisible, what men are doing and what the Holy Spirit is doing. Verify. Verify that you are safe. Are you watchful over your own soul? That's the first probing question. Second, have you soiled your garments? Verse 2 here says, Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. One commentator paraphrases that as, in everything you do, I find deficiency. Verse 4 says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. Before Jesus, as the one who has the pulse on what men are doing and what the Spirit of God is doing, could He look at your way of life, at your manner of life, and say, yes, He has not soiled His garments. He walks with me in white. I find His works complete in the sight of my God. Do not find deficiency in what He does. Do not find deficiency in what she does. Now, obviously, we know that none of our works are perfect. So we can't, we can't understand this to be Jesus criticizing them for not being perfectly and entirely sanctified and in sinless perfection. Right? We know, we know that that's not what this means here. But is there, a, is there a 
sincerity and an authenticity and an earnestness and a pure motivation and so on and so forth to the works that you do such that the one who has a pulse on what men are doing and the one who has a pulse on what the Spirit of God is doing could look at you and say, yes, he's one who is walking by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. He is one who is mortifying the misdeeds of the flesh. He is one who is, by the Spirit, walking in newness of life. Have you soiled your garments, or are you walking with Jesus in white? That's the second probing question. The third probing question is this. Are you worthy to walk with Jesus in white? Are you worthy? Matthew Henry distinguishes between merit and meetness, which is, a, which is an old way of saying fitness or suitability. Merit and meetness. Obviously, we know from the rest of Scripture that none of us, strictly speaking, are worthy of walking with Jesus. We know that even our righteousness is as filthy rags with respect to their value if we were to offer them towards our justification, towards our right standing in God's eyes. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and so on and so forth. Even our, even our confession says that our, our best works are a mixture of... Uh, it's off the top of my head, so bear with a paraphrase here. Our, our best works are, are mixed with sin and imperfection so that they couldn't pass muster if God were to inspect very closely and very carefully. So we know that what Jesus means here, being worthy, is not that we have rid ourselves of sin and that quite apart from Jesus, we have somehow managed to get rid of not only the guilt and the corruption of our sin, and now we're worthy to walk with Jesus in white. We know that it can't mean that because the rest of the scripture teaches against that. And so Matthew Henry says, this doesn't mean merit, but this means meetness or fitness, or suitability. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, when we see a therefore in Scripture, we have to ask, what is it there for? Right? So the whole first three chapters of Ephesians are making it so clear here that we have been saved by grace through faith. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul labors in the first three chapters of Ephesians to show that if you are a believer, it's because God the Father chose you. If you are a believer, it's because God the Son died on the cross bearing the punishment that you deserve for your sin and gave you His righteousness in its place. If you are a believer, it's because when you were blind and dead in your trespasses and sins, the Holy Spirit drew you and brought you to faith in Christ and sealed you for the day of redemption. If you are a believer, it's because God has been gracious. All of this is by grace to the praise of His glorious grace. And then in Ephesians 4.1, he says, Now, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the same sense in which worthy is being used in Revelation 3. Look, if you have been chosen by God, redeemed by His Son, made alive by His Spirit, walk with Jesus in white. Don't soil your garments. Don't be presumptuous about... You're standing before God as you entertain all kinds of impure motivations in your heart and play games and seek glory for yourself instead of seeking the glory of God. Don't do that. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. The three questions again, are you being watchful over your own soul? Have you soiled your garments? Are you worthy to walk with Jesus in white? Give thought to these things. Don't just tell yourself, well, this is for non-church people. No, this is for church people who have a reputation of being alive but are dead. This is who Jesus is writing to. It's people that are presumptuous, like worthy alive people. What do you mean? What do you mean we might be in danger? What do you mean that Christ Jesus might not be on our side? We're the church people. Men applaud us. Men know that we are devotees of Christ Jesus. What do you mean that we might be in danger? Jesus is writing to people like that. He's saying, be watchful. Be careful. Those who merely have a reputation for being alive but are dead will have their names blotted out of the book of life. Look at chapter 3 and verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name 
out of the book of life. The language here implies the opposite. That the one who, who stays sleeping, the one who is presumptuous, the one who is the not-so-obvious hypocrite, the one who spends his life in the visible church, but never comes by the Spirit to partake of the invisible spiritual realities pertaining to Christ and His Gospel. His name will be blotted out of the book of life. That's the implication of this verse here. And Calvinists do backflips and somersaults to try to get around this language about your name being blotted out of the book of life. Because we believe that God the Father has an elect people that He chose. And if He chose them, then they are predestined. I mean, we read it from Ephesians 1. And Jesus shed His blood for them. And all who the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him. And whoever comes to Him will never be cast out. They cannot be plucked out of His hand. And those whom He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. And there's this golden chain. And so... No, no, we can't have a name blotted out of the book of life. Right? But, but listen here. This is... Everything I just told you is theologically true and correct. But this is nevertheless the word picture that Jesus uses. Jesus is the one who talks about taking an eraser to the book of life. And scrubbing your name from it. If you're playing games with it. If what you're really about is your glory. If what you're really about is having a reputation of being alive. But have no actual share in Him. And in spiritual realities. So look, I'm not going to be wiser than Jesus and say that it's not an apt metaphor. That it's not an apt word picture here. I believe in divine election. I believe in the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the golden chain in Romans. I believe in all of these things, but I also believe that Jesus here says, I'm going to take an eraser to the book of life for the people who play at church, for the people who have a reputation of being alive but are dead. Heed the warning then of Jesus. What matters is not what your reputation is. What matters is what the reality is. Not do you have a reputation of being alive, but are you alive? Not whether you have a reputation of being saved, but whether you are saved Not whether you have a reputation of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but whether you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Not whether you have a reputation as a person of prayer, but whether you are a person of prayer. Not whether you have a reputation of being formed and shaped by the Bible, but whether you actually are formed and shaped by the Bible. Not whether you have a reputation of knowing Jesus and being known unto Him, but whether you actually are known unto Jesus and whether you actually know Him.
Because there are lots of people who have a reputation of knowing Jesus and being known unto Him. They even do many mighty works in His name. But Jesus Himself tells us that there are a bunch of them who will show up on the last day and He's going to say, I never knew you. We sang earlier in the service, come to me, based on Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you come to Jesus? Not, do other people think you have come to Jesus? We sang earlier, my Jesus, I love thee. Do you really love Jesus? Could you say to Jesus honestly, as Peter said in John 21, you know that I love you. Could you say to Jesus, you know that I love you. We sang earlier, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. All I need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Is that true of you? Is that all you need? All you trust? The deep, deep love of Jesus. What if men mocked you? What if men jeered? What if men canceled you? What if men imprisoned you? What if men cut off your head? What if men crucified you? What if you were going to be on the wrong side of history? What if you were too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives and found that following Jesus put you in some awkward positions and you weren't the hero of any particular camp? Is it true of you that all you need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus? What if you had to confess your sins? What if part of, what if the right response called for from you this morning were to confess your hypocrisy? Say, you know what? I have a reputation of being alive, but honestly, I'm seeing that I'm dead. Here's all the ways that I need to come clean. And what if that would absolutely shatter your reputation? The way that people would think of you. Could you say, well, never mind that because all I need, all I trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Sometimes that's what it looks like to wake up. It's to come clean. It's to let the reputation of being alive go so that you can actually truly be alive. Let the dead hypocrisy go, which wins you the applause of men. Start on this path of following Jesus, which may not be as comfortable, it may not be as glorious, but it's real. Let us not be hypocrites concerned with how things appear. Rather, let us be concerned with what actually is.